What's up, Dialed fam? Welcome to episode 154 of the Dialed Health Podcast. My name is Derek Teal. I'm the owner and head coach here at dialedhealth.com, which is strength training for cyclists. And on today's episode, we're diving into my race recap of the Unbound 200. Now, before we get into the details, I have to acknowledge that my voice sounds crazy. I came home with a beatdown immune system directly to a sick household. All my kids were sick. My wife just got sick. I woke up with a scratchy throat finally. So I don't know what's going on, but hopefully it doesn't ruin your experience because there is so much that happened on this ride. And I can honestly say it's one of the most memorable rides I've ever had in my entire life. I will never forget this race. And we'll begin by going to the start line because I want to talk about really how electric the start line was and that feeling of being in the pro start corral as we took off before 6 a.m., I want to talk about the race tactics early on, like the first 10 miles before we hit the now infamous mud section. I want to talk about what I did to handle the mud section and how it affected me both physically and mentally. Then I want to move forward into the race and tell you about all the random stuff that happened that you would never see and that you could only experience from doing an event like this. Little things from trying to help someone out and having to directly lie to their face to escape (laughs) to the talk amongst the riders, especially after being beat down by those first opening miles. I want to talk about the aid station dynamic and my support crew with Garmin. I want to talk about the heat and also the sleeting rain that followed it, which was unlike any rain I've ever experienced outdoors period. I want to talk about the snickerdoodles that made me praise the Lord out loud by myself in the middle of Kansas. And I want to talk about what it felt like to roll into the finish line. And as you can imagine, there's a whole lot more we'll get into throughout the recap of this race. But I did do a Q&A at the end of the episode just to make sure I answered all of your questions from Instagram. So we'll start with the race recap. We'll go into a brief Q&A and hopefully give you all the information that you wanted to know. Now, if you do love this episode, please leave me a five-star rating and review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. You can also screenshot that you're listening to the episode and share it to your Instagram story. Be sure to tag myself so I have the opportunity to repost it. A lot of you guys do that, and it is so cool to show that people are listening to the podcast, and it's working. The podcast is growing, which is really exciting. But the number one thing that you can do to support me and Dialed Health is to go to dialedhealth.com and get yourself a membership. This will give you access to all the strength and mobility programs and workouts that we have available on the website for you to implement today. You can start with a program questionnaire, which will ask you questions that are necessary for me to help you pick the perfect program. And it really does go to me. Someone actually thought it was a bot, but no, it will be me responding to you, helping you through the process. And of course, you can do this all with a seven-day free trial. So please take advantage of it. Thank you for the support. Now let's get into the episode. The anticipation on the start line of Unbound is unlike anything I've ever experienced. It feels like that entire town was built just to support this race. And when you're sitting there with the top riders in the world before the sun is up, and there's the photographers, and there's all the support crew, there's thousands of riders behind you, it is a crazy feeling. In fact, I was starting to get nervous, which I have not experienced genuine nervousness for a race in a while. And I couldn't help it. I just got to the point where I wanted to roll out. And I think most people felt that way as well because there is so much lead up to this event. There's so much more to organize. There's the logistics of the SAG support. There's the travel for most people. And then there's just this unique distance of a race. You know, it's like twice as long as any other race that most most of us are going to do throughout the year. And for me, I've taken on 200 miles in many different ways. I feel like 
I was ready for the actual day itself from a just enduring standpoint, like an, an ability to keep moving forward. But I really had no idea how hard this was going to be. It surpassed that level of difficulty, I'd say two times over. It was so much harder than I thought it would be. And I really am excited to tell you guys how the day went. So basically, they give us the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. We roll out way faster than you would expect a 200 mile ride to roll out, but it's just that nervous energy. It's like they say go and people are pushing forward because we had like two miles of a straight road before we turned onto the fire road. And I know people were trying to really get into position. Like for me, being halfway into the group, maybe even two thirds of the way back was totally fine because. I didn't want to waste any energy, and I also knew that the race was just going to slowly come apart as it went on because it was such a long day, but this was actually kind of a mistake. I think I was not aggressive enough in the beginning because the whole washing machine effect was happening throughout the beginning of this ride, a ton. In fact, I was trying to leave some wheels in front of me, but they kept getting filled, and I was doing that to be cautious because not only do you have a big nervous group of like 250 people, but you also, which by the way, was just the pro wave, but you also have stuff in the gravel that you can't see if you're following someone's wheel. And I've heard that most of the punctures actually happen within the first hour for that reason. You know, a pothole comes up or there's some sharp rock that you can't avoid because you didn't see it. And I was really trying to do my best to be cautious and allow a little bit of room. But again, people just kept filling the gap. And there was a point where I was like, okay, I need to move up in position, which I actually made one really good effort of once we were on the gravel. And it was right before this now infamous mud section, which we'll get to. But I have to tell you about the crazy thing that happened on the road before we even got to the gravel. So within like the first two miles, there was oncoming traffic and they did their best to block it off. We had a police escort and they even tell you, you know, stay on your side of the road. Don't cross the double yellow. But I'll tell you, There's yet to be a gravel race I've done where people stay on their side of the road. And it's understandable. I mean, especially when you're that close to the start, but there was oncoming traffic and people start saying, car up, car up. And they're shuffling over. I was actually more on the left side of the road. So I'm shuffling over. And as I do that and pass this car, which is now parked, this guy driving, dude, his poor guy, he had his family in the car. I don't know what they were doing at 6am. Maybe they were just trying to drive to the start of the race, but was the most wide-eyed person I have ever seen. I kid you not. It didn't even look like this guy had eyelids. Like It looked like his eyes were popping out of his head. He was so freaked out at this huge oncoming mob of riders. And people were yelling at him. I think he got pulled over instantly. There was a a cop behind us as well. So (laughs) it was just crazy. And it was just a reminder that you really have to be heads up riding in the beginning of these races. And going forward, I will say I'm going to be more aggressive from the start because there's that washing machine effect. There's people filling the gaps in front of you. I think this is one of those moments where you realize, okay, I know what the smartest thing to do is, but I'm racing and there is a level of risk you have to take just to sign up in a race and actually put yourself in somewhat of a decent position. If you really don't care, you can just hang off the back, but it moves fast enough to where you have to be pretty aggressive. In fact, Even when we got on the fire road, there's these flat 90 degree corners that we navigated and it was moving fast enough to actually rubber band out a little bit, kind of like a crit or like a fast group ride would around a corner. It would actually rubber band out. And if you didn't grab a gear and get on some power out of each one of these corners, 
you would actually start like drifting back in the group. And you guys, this is at six in the morning, <laughs> six in the morning, you're on dirt, you have a 200 mile day and it's like, dang, you know, you have to be cruising right now. And in hindsight, I know people probably did better course recon than I did. And they were just really trying to push forward until we got to this really infamous mud section because we rolled up to it. And I actually thought based on the pre-ride I did the day before, I was like, oh, this is like a big mud puddle or maybe it's a 50 foot stretch of mud. So I'm just going to power through it because when we hit it, it was like a bomb went off in the group. I kid you not, people were going left into the grass. People were going to right into the grass. People were riding in the middle of it, but crashing left and right. In fact, this is where I was feeling really good about myself because I have the technical skills from my history in gravity racing. And so all the downhilling I've done, all of it, it really does show itself on the gravel bike, which I try and take advantage of. And I'm like, dude, I can ride through this. I'm going to downshift. I'm going through the mud. I'm literally weaving between people who are crashed in the mud. And I felt great, but I didn't realize what a complete idiot I was being because pretty soon I came to a stop out of nowhere because I had so much mud bound up on the sidewall of my tires that it actually clogged my fork. Same thing happened with my rear triangle and I had an insane amount of mud on my down tube. And I was like, oh, this is why people aren't riding in the mud. <laughs> it's not just because they can't, it's because it's really dumb to try and ride in this type of sticky mud. Now, at that point, I wasn't stressed and I think one of the best things that I prepared for came through. I had a painter's stir stick. Now, I stayed with the Maxis team and their mechanic, Drew, shout out to him, got me one of these stir sticks that we actually taped underneath the top tube of our frame. So it was really accessible and it was there just in case you needed it. And I love that spot because I, I want to say it's pretty arrow, but regardless, it's super out of the way. Like if you never even used it for the day, it'd be there and you wouldn't notice it, which is pretty cool. So we had taped it there. And the first thing I did, I was like, perfect. I grabbed this thing, ripped it off the tape scrape the mud off of my sidewall, scrape it off my down tube, and at least get my bike light enough to carry because it must have been 50 plus pounds at that point. Um, there's actually a picture of Keegan riding through some of the mud. And if you see the amount of dirt that's clogged on just his down tube alone, it'll give you really good perspective. It looks like he's riding an e-bike. That's how thick his frame looks. And, uh, you know, his power actually kind of makes you think he was riding an e-bike. Those dudes are so freaking insane. But yeah, I get to the side and I'm like, okay, we're cruising in the grass. And this is where I went on to make probably the biggest amount of mistakes for the entire day. I kept attempting to get back onto the dirt way sooner than I should have. And then once I tried to get back onto the grass, I spent too much time clearing my bike from all the mud. And ultimately that back and forth led to mud packing in my chain it gets in between the links, you'll get rocks in there and it won't actually sit on your chain ring. And I was just dumping chains. I, I must have dumped at least six chains as I tried to get going. And I think ultimately I just spent way too much time fiddling with my stuff instead of just throwing that bike on my back and running. And I did do some of that, but by the point I figured it out, I was so deep in the pack that there was just like a wall of people on this muddy, grassy trench on the side of the road moving so slowly. It's like I couldn't actually go the pace that I wanted. And that's where I realized, I was like, dude, I have to get through this event. Like there's no point now to focus on any result or positioning. I felt like I literally made that switch in my head right then and there to go from racing to survival. And it was kind of disappointing to accept, but the only thing I could think of was that 
dude, this is racing. I mean, that's what you signed up for. This is this right here, this moment of crap is the difference between racing and riding. When you sign up for an event, you're saying on this day at this time, I'm lining up and I'm going no matter what the conditions are, plain and simple, no matter how I feel, no matter what the conditions are, no matter what weird thing is going on, no matter what I forgot on the trip, I'm showing up and I'm going. It's so different from just riding because you, for one, you don't have the pressure of, you know, clearing the mud off your bike and trying to get going again fast. Like you can take your time, but you could also just change the route completely or just push it back a day. Like you have all this flexibility. It doesn't really matter, but when you're forced on the spot to perform, no matter what the conditions are, that is racing. And I don't know if some of the people complaining about the event just don't understand that or if they have never experienced it before. Like, even though I've never experienced mud like this in this situation, I've ridden in it in enduro racing in the past and downhill or even showing up to a place, you know, a ski resort and it snowed the night before and you're trying to do a track walk and look at lines with snow on the ground. It's like, this is the difference between racing and riding. And so that's really all I could think of in my head. I wasn't like angry. I wasn't just pissed off or annoyed or just defeated. Like honestly, a lot of people were, I just thought I was like, this is racing. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. And did I handle it well from a like performance standpoint? No, I, I don't think I really did, but mentally I felt like I was there and I was proud of that. And I think the biggest reason I was able to stay there mentally, like in a good place was just because I made that switch. Like this is racing. I came here to race. I came here to perform. I've been training for it, but honestly, I've been thrown this deck of cards and I'm going to have to, you know, try and play the best hand I can. And at this point, it's just going to be getting through the day and completing it. And so that shift in mindset, even though it is slightly disappointing, I think it really saved me moving forward because I'll tell you, once we got back onto some actual rideable fire road, you know, which was like three, four miles later, people were so defeated and pissed off and just down. I mean, I would ride past people and they were like, like, if this is what I got to do to race, I don't want to do it. Blah, blah, blah. I can't believe they didn't reroute the course. Blah, blah, blah. Like freaking out. And and this is just the people that continued. You know, unfortunately, there were some legit mechanicals that stopped people from continuing the race at that mud point. You know, there was multiple derailers ripped off because of all the grass that was getting clogged up in the things. And I'm like looking around. I'm like, dude, we're still going. Like, and also you guys, we're 20 miles in, like, like literally you have such a long time to go. Like you got to get rid of these negative thoughts and keep moving because it's not going to get easier, especially if you're talking that way. And what's funny too, at that point, you're so deep in the pack where in my head, it's like, okay, positioning doesn't matter, but people are still so aggro out there. It, it's really crazy. And I, I really think it's because of how hard that start was and how unexpected it was, I think, for a lot of people. For example, I roll up on this guy who had a flat, which really does suck. I'll tell you, talk about getting kicked while you're down. Getting a flat tire, you know, within an hour after that butt section was really unfortunate timing for your morale. But this guy was freaking out. And so I hear him yelling at groups in front of me. And he's like, my my CO2 adapter broke. And I'm actually riding solo between a couple groups. And at this point, I know I'm like, you know what? Positioning is out the window. I'm going to ride and just try and finish this day and enjoy it as much as I can. And so I'm going to help this guy out. So I stop, I pull my CO2 out. 
And he's like, oh man, like I, I'm telling you, he was on the verge of tears, you guys. <laughs> I, I felt bad, but at the same time, I just wanted to be like, dude, we're so deep in the field. Like you need to calm down because your positioning doesn't matter to anybody at this point. Not, like not even you. <laughs> and also like, we're, we're okay. Like we're, we're going to be all right, man. Like we're out on this uh, basically closed course with all these thousands of riders and race support. Like it, I, I know this is a bad situation, but you got to collect yourself a little bit. In fact, him freaking out and acting so crazy made me calmer like have you ever been in that position before where someone is actually so over the top with their reaction that it almost makes you go the other direction and you're like okay like we really need to reel this in right now that was me at that point uh, but at the same time I, it was hard for me to kind of handle it so I wasn't talking very much I just I stopped I grabbed my co2 out of my pocket it's got an adapter on it I should have probably just handed him my CO2 with the adapter on it, but instead I decided to unscrew my adapter. And as I'm doing it, he's like, oh, can't you just hand me the, oh, oh. And he's like trying to micromanage everything I'm doing. So I literally hand him this adapter and he's like, oh, thanks, man. Like, yeah, I appreciate it, blah, blah, blah. And he's trying to get it back on. He's like, how do you work this thing? Asking all these random questions. And then basically as soon as he turns on the CO2, Dude, the O-ring blows out of the adapter and he breaks my CO2. <laughs> so this guy is 0 for 2 on adapters. He literally breaks his, flags me down almost in tears, and then mine breaks. And I knew the whole time I had a second one in my uh, saddlebag. And I see him do that. And in my head, I'm just like, whoa, that sucks. <laughs> and he tries to first off hand it back to me. And I, I was like, uh, you can keep it. And then he asked me, he's like, do you have another one? And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I looked this man right in the eyes and I lied to his face. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second because I really pride myself on being an honest human. I, I like telling the truth, almost to a fault. But I looked at him and I was just like, nope. <laughs> and I just turned around and I kept it rolling. I mean, I did not know what else to do it. This guy was 0 for 2. I couldn't trust that his luck was going to turn around. I only had one more. And at that point, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm fending for myself on this one. Like, <laughs> this guy, <laughs> this guy is on his own. And you know what? It was so crazy, too. When he actually broke the adapter, or it broke, I can't really blame him. He didn't do anything wrong. But when it broke, <laughs> he's all oh man, I'm effed. And like the way he said it, it was like out of a freaking sitcom or something. I just, oh, I almost couldn't hit it. It was so like funny and sad at the same time. Hopefully, I don't know if he's listening to this. If you are, dude, I'm sorry. We'll keep your name anonymous and uh, we'll just have to reel it in next time a little bit. You know, just try and keep your cool a little bit more. And you know what? If you guys ever see me freaking out at a gravel race, bring up this moment, okay? You can call me out on it. I promise I will, uh, I'll appreciate it or we'll see what happens. But basically from that point, my mindset was in a better place. I actually rolled past the first water stop, which I didn't plan on stopping on, but I kind of had to pee. I wanted to top off my bottles. We still had, you know, 30 plus miles at that point to get to the first aid station at mile 79. And because I had switched that, that gear of being like, okay, I'm going from racing to just riding. I was like, I'm going to drink as much as I can. I'm going to just keep myself comfortable. So basically stopped there, kept it moving. And the only thing I noticed really in between those gaps was for one, it started heating up quite a bit. 
but my feet started hurting. Like, like legitimately got so uncomfortable at some points. I didn't want to put pressure on the pedals or stand. And I was like, what is going on? Because I've never dealt with issues in these shoes before. And I've done big days on, on the bike, but I was like, oh, it's gotta be because I just ran for three miles. Like I've also never ran in them and then done a, you know, hundred plus mile a day. So I think that was something I didn't expect or couldn't have really prepared for. But I will say of all the discomforts I had in the entire day, it was my feet in my shoes. And part of that had to do with some of the rocks being in my shoes. Later on, I ended up having sand build up in my shoes as the rain came down. But once I rolled into mile 79 at the aid station, I can honestly say that I was just kind of over it. I was focused on finishing, but I was also really questioning like if I was going to finish because so many people were dropping out and everyone was being so negative, to be honest, that I was kind of just like, man, like, am I really going to do this thing? Like, is there going to be more fire road that I already endured like that coming up? Like, I, I actually don't know. And so I rolled into that 79 station and this is where everything really changed for me mentally. And I got really extra focused on finishing. I had Walter basically run with me from the entrance of the actual aid station all the way to where we were. Dude is sprinting, asking me how I'm doing. And we get to the aid station. I realized they have a full easy up setup. All my food is spread out. I, I basically hand Dave, who was the other half of the support, or main support besides Walter's dad, who was also just incredible. But I hand him my bike. I'm telling you, this was like like Formula One pit stop. Grabs it, immediately has a pressure washer, getting all the mud off. And I, there was someone else working on my bike. I don't even know who it was. And they were just going to work. And I was like, dang, that's that's pretty cool. And I sit down and I told Walter about my feet. He instantly doesn't even think. He starts undoing my boa, which was super hard to get off, by the way, because it was so clogged up with dirt takes my shoes off, hands me a Red Bull. He is asking me the, just the questions I needed. He's handing me a banana, ask, you know, encouraging me to eat. And I was literally looking around at this operation. And I'm telling you, I felt so inspired to finish it for the team that I, I didn't question it from that point on if I was actually going to finish. Because even though I felt mentally in a better place than most people out there. I did have that thought coming into the pit area. And by the time I left the pit area, I, I didn't think about that again for the rest of the day. I, I knew, well, actually I'll, I'll back up here. I did question finishing because of the conditions once we got to mile 150, which we'll talk about in a second, but I'll tell you like that was that moment. It almost sounds corny to say out loud, but you realize how much people are sacrificing for the sake of you and your day and your experience that you can't let them down. You know what I mean? Like it's uh, it was weird. I, I haven't grown up doing a lot of team sports. And I think that was one of the moments where I was like, gosh, I really feel that, you know, the, the other times I felt it were on the double Everest ride and the MTB Everest that I did. We had such an operation of a team that I, I did feel the same way, but both of those days I went, the majority of the time without questioning finishing. Like I never questioned finishing on the mountain bike Everest. The double Everest I did for a second, but that was way, way toward the end. And so it was really cool to have that. And I will tell you that when you can't dig deep for yourself, you got to put the attention on other people. You know, even later in the race, one of the motivations I had was 
thinking about my kids and just telling them about the fact I did a 200 mile race across dirt roads in Kansas and how badass that is. And the fact that I want my kids to be proud of the stuff that I've been doing, you know, they're not going to ask what place I got or really care that much. They're going to be just like, dude, my dad did these super badass races and he's kind of gnarly. And and that's what I want, dude. I want my kids to think that I'm gnarly. I want to have that respect from them. And if they ever decide to do something like that in the future, they need to know that I'm coming from a place of experience when I try and help them out through the process. Now, I also had a dialed fan member at this rest stop come up, say hi, got a couple great photos of me. And he also <laughs> cleaned my glasses. And it was funny because I asked him, I was just like, hey, can you use your shirt to clean these glasses? And I felt kind of bad because my glasses have sweat and just like who knows what all over them. And he did. And that was really cool. So I rolled out knowing that we had a huge gap until basically the next aid station, which was just a water stop. But that was until mile 124. And then the next actual SAG support station was 167. So huge gap. I threw on a new pack, which was a two liter USWI, and I got back on the bike. Now, because the gaps were so big at this point in the day, I really broke it down into almost like five mile chunks at times. You know, at first I was like, okay, like, don't worry about getting all the way to 167, the next sag, just get to 124. But you know, I'm 79 miles in. So <laughs> literally I got to a point where I was like, okay, just get to mile 85. Okay. Just get to mile 90. And then I got to the point where I was just focused on getting to mile 100 because crossing through that threshold was ultimately the back half of the ride. Even though it was 204 miles, I knew I was like, okay, get to 100 and then we could start counting down the miles. And that actually feels really motivating, especially halfway through because the weird part about being halfway through such a big day is that you know you're only halfway. <laughs> Does that sound obvious? But like, Think about it this way. You just went through six, seven hours of whatever to get there. And you're like, I have to do that again. And that's the reality that I think is tough. Like it becomes easier to swallow the reality of like a third of the way to go or, oh, you got 50 miles left. But like, dude, <laughs> when you have another half to do, you got to do it all over again. And you don't even know what the conditions are going to be. It is, it's hard. You got to dig for anything that motivates you. And I'll just say, Knowing that I was counting down the mileage instead of up was the thing that kept me motivated. Now, at this point, you guys, I'm on and off groups. We're cruising through roads. Actually, we were on some really good fire roads at this point. Everything was fast rolling. There really wasn't much wind. and It, it was heating up, but I was, I would say, kind of enjoying it out there. You know, it was it, just an interesting ride. We went by some Amish people, saw them building a house. I saw these kids these Amish kids, like three stories up on the frame of a house. I don't even know what they were balancing on, but they were just chilling, waving, saw the horse and buggy. That was pretty cool. Um, the guys were actually sharp. Like they all just looked fit, tucked in shirt, smiling. Uh, clothes were like freshly pressed. They had the hat on. Like I was like, dude, these guys look good. These dudes are taking care of themselves. But like, where are they getting all their supplies? <laughs> like, how do they have so much lumber out here? Like, I, I don't barely see any trees. So, uh, also, did they get it on like a horse and buggy? Like, dude, I mean, that that's a whole different rabbit hole. But the Amish people was like random and interesting. And it was like one of those moments in a big bike ride where you stop and think, you're like, hmm, didn't expect to see that. <laughs> and you just, you keep it going. Uh, but, you know, I eventually made it to the 124 water stop. 
Um, you know, at this point I really was breaking down the numbers again. It was like every 10 miles I had a new goal, just get to the next 10 miles, just get to the next 10 miles. And I'll tell you, by the time we got to this water stop, this was the hottest point of the day where I want to say it was around 80 degrees, but the thing was it's fully exposed in the sun and the humidity is like 85, 90%. Like it's pretty thick out there. And you could tell it was taking a toll on people because they were just zombies. There were these zombies sitting in chairs people looking so cracked, people who stopped that were not getting back up, like their race partners. I heard some of them saying, hey, are you coming? They're just like, nope. And so it was it was definitely a breaking point. And it was also another reminder of how different this race is. You know, the biggest race I've done mileage-wise besides this was BWR in Arizona. It's 120-something miles. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're at this aid station that's like, not even two thirds of the way through. And like, you know, I would have been done with the other race by now. Like I would have actually been done. And not only would I have been done, but, but the terrain on the other race was, you know, comparatively a lot easier. So it's like, I've already had like one of the hardest days and now we have to keep going. So I just topped off my bottles. I actually grabbed these random snickerdoodles that some local had made. And you could tell they were homemade because they're just wrapped up in the saran wrap. And, you know, I said, what's up to my crew? Cause they were actually there, threw on some sunscreen over all the dirt and sweat. I just caked it right on there and I kept it rolling. And basically the, the stretch of 124 all the way up until 150 was almost completely solo. And the terrain was really cool. You know, it was, uh, it was just like Kansas Hills again, fully exposed, fast rolling fire road, but the wind was picking up and it was blowing in a storm. And there was literally one turn I made where I could see the thundercloud. And I was just like, dude, we're going in that storm. There's no way I don't get absolutely dumped on. You could actually hear the thunder. And so I reached into my back pocket and I pulled out those snickerdoodles. And again, I've been by myself riding for like a couple hours now. <laughs> and I literally take out these snickerdoodles and I took a bite. And they were so good. Out loud, I literally said, sweet baby Jesus, that's good. That's, <laughs> that's all I could think of. I was just like, oh, sweet baby Jesus. These snickerdoodles are just what I needed. God bless that beautiful woman who made these things. And so I ate those. I'm rolling into the thundercloud. It starts sprinkling. The wind picks up. I make another turn and now I am full on in the rain. In the matter of five to 10 minutes, it goes from being hot and just caked on with dirt to actually completely raining. And the temperature must have dropped by like 15 degrees, which initially felt really good. And I'm at mile 150 and I'm like, you know what? This actually feels really good right now. I'm like, this is cooling me off, but I'm still staying warm. But also, how long am I going to stay warm for? Because I don't have any layers, and we're 17 miles out from the next support station. And so I was kind of thinking about it, but it really wasn't getting to me too much because it honestly felt kind of good. And then it just kept getting worse, and then worse. And I'll tell you, by mile like 155, I was in the most sleeting, hardest rain I have ever been in outside I want to say even seen it's hard because you know, your perception on the bike's probably a little bit different, but I'm just going to try and tell you how hard this rain was for one. I had to actually tilt my head sideways because the side wind was coming so strong 
And I had to close my right eye because it was hitting me at the side so aggressively that the raindrops were hitting me in my eye underneath my sunglasses. Like it was completely pelting me from the right side and I'm tilting my head. My right eye is completely closed and I rode like that for a mile. And not only that, but it kind of (laughs) hurt. Like, I'll just be honest. It was, it didn't, it didn't hurt like in a real sense, but it hurt in the sense that you didn't know if it was hail or just really hard. I mean, it was for sure really hard rain, but it didn't seem cold enough for hail. It just, it kind of hurt your skin. And it was more so the reality of being like, how, how long is this going to last? Because again, I am for sure going to be riding out here for another 45 minutes minimum. I mean, I'm going like 13 miles an hour because the wind is so insane. And also the lightning and the thunder, you just feel exposed. And I kid you not, one thing that empowered me at that moment was seeing the little specks of people ahead of me, knowing that they weren't stopping and they were continuing to go. I mean, some people did actually take shelter. There was this random awning in this uh, field that some people had stopped under, like a group of like 10 people. But other than that, people were still moving. And I was like, I guess I'm just going to keep moving because it's like, there's no trees out here. I can't stop and like actually take shelter. So what am I going to do? Just stop and get absolutely annihilated by the rain? Like I might as well make up some ground right now. So that's what I did. I just kept it moving. And I'll tell you, that was the moment too where I was like, you know what? I don't know if I can finish, if it keeps up like this for the rest of the day. But if I get through this, this will be one of the experiences on the bike I will never forget. And you know, I came for an experience. That's really what I wanted. So that's what I thought about. It was more, what does future me think about this moment right now? And future me wanted to tell the story of getting through this. And so I'm just so genuinely proud of myself for pushing through that because again, I have never ridden rain like this. I got caught in a couple storms this winter, but it's different when you're five miles from your house and it's, it's kind of a normal rain. This was just so aggressively raining that I was honestly amazed. I was like able to ride through it. Like really, um, it was a type of rain where if you ever saw a race and watched it from your cozy couch while you're sipping your coffee, you would think, oh my gosh, that's absolutely brutal. Like I would never do that unless someone was paying me. And even then I maybe wouldn't want to. That is the position I was in. I'm telling you, this was the most ruthless rain downpour I've probably ever seen. And riding through it was just, just insane. So thankfully, after like five miles of that and riding for at least a mile with my eye completely closed, (laughs) it started letting off enough to where I could just relax a little bit. And I realized, okay, I'm not getting too cold. I can definitely make it to the aid station. And I'm about to make a turn up here for the first time in a while. And when I do that, I'm actually going to have a tailwind. And right about the time I made that turn, which I think was like, I don't I want to say it was like mile one, it was like 157, 158. There's a little Garmin set up, a little water station. I made the turn and the actual rain led off enough to, to relax a little bit. Like it wasn't, painful anymore. It wasn't aggressive. It was just a nice light rain. And I was like, okay, I think I made it through that. I'm actually riding away from the storm. And now I'm inside 10 miles of the next aid station. Like I can freaking do this. And it was kind of cool at that point. I was meeting up with more groups. And before I got to that next aid station, I actually got caught by someone who was doing the XL, the 350. And (laughs) 
dude, this guy looks over at me. He's like, oh, what's up? And I'm like, hey, what's up? And he says, I'm 25 hours in. And I'm like, oh my gosh, dude. That was this reminder of perspective that I needed to just not feel sorry for myself. You know, when you're talking to somebody who's been out there all through the night when you were cozy in your little sleeping bag air mattress, like even though I didn't get a great night's sleep, I still got to sleep. This guy's been riding through the night in those conditions for 25 hours. So that, I'll tell you that alone, got me to the next aid station, no problem. And when I rolled in there, again, it was so cool. It was pit stop number two. The crew handled my bike. I had Walter's mom was there now. Dude, she's changing my socks for me. They had a fresh pair of socks, which I'll tell you, if it rains like that, fresh socks and fresh gloves, probably the biggest game changer. Got all the sand that was built up in my shoe because my feet were still killing me, but I got super warm. I had more food and I rolled out of there feeling really good. And also knowing that in a way, this was like kind of the home stretch, you know, not really because I still had 40 miles, but at the same time, I'm like, dude, if I can make it here, I, and I can make it through that mud. If I can make it through that rain, I can freaking finish this thing. And honestly, that next bit, I felt really strong. Like I felt like I was actually able to tap into some power because all day I just, I, I wasn't even really thinking about like my power, you know? And, and that was a little bit of, of a disappointing thing after the fact. I'm like, man, I felt like I had so much more in my legs, but again, it's like in the moment, dude, it's, it, for me, it was the last thing I was thinking about <laughs> was like really how hard I was going. I felt like I had one gear all day. And it was just like the survival mode gear. It was like the zone two, keep it moving. Don't do anything you don't have to do. Just keep going. And so toward the end, I felt like I was able to step that up a bit. And, you know, I really stayed comfortable enough uh, really through the rest of the race. Like we started rolling up on more groups who were doing like the 50 and the 100. And it was just cool to seeing all these people, um, having that energy, kind of the shared experience. I will say we did go back into the rain, but it wasn't like that hard of a rain. And and this is also, again, where your perspective changes so much in an event like this. Like I literally went from being like, gosh, I hope it doesn't rain at all to being like, oh, this rain's not that bad because that rain before was horrendous. And if it just keeps up like this, I'm cool. I can ride in this like all day, I felt like. So that was kind of this cool thing is because in real time, you see like how much tougher you've gotten or how much more adaptable you've gotten or the idea of rain doesn't scare you as much because you're like oh I can actually be comfortable in the rain somehow which I never thought I could be just make sure it doesn't go down that hard you know <laughs> so I basically tt'd my way all the way back toward the finish I kept drinking I kept eating I even stopped to take a pee like 10 miles from the finish and that was just because I wanted to come across the line and, and not feel like cracked, you know, five miles from the finish, I had another bar. And I think at that point I just had like a cliff bar and I was like, you know what, I'm going to continue fueling as well as I can, because all day I, I will say my feeling was so on point. It was insane. I, I might've drank, I don't want to say I drank too much, but if I were to be more competitive from a race standpoint, I don't think I could drink as much as I did. Cause I was actually peeing a good amount. And so I think it was a little bit overkill, but at the same time, I know it helped my recovery and I know it helped the back half of the ride. And ultimately that could be why I actually felt so good in the last 30 miles. But the last thing I'll say about this race is that you think after riding 200 miles that the true home stretch would be the last five. 
And, and that is true, but I'll tell you, in the moment, five miles can feel very far. <laughs> like I remember getting to mile 200 and then waiting for the miles to start ticking down. And it took so long to get to mile 202, just in my own time perception, that I remember thinking, I'm like, this is the worst, dude. <laughs> like literally, why is this so hard right now? I should be, I should have like this jolt of energy, but it's just, you can't hide from that amount of abuse on your body. And even when you're within reach of finishing, it still feels hard. It honestly wasn't until I turned back onto that main strip that we started on and had that very long finish corral, which was awesome by the way, because people were cheering you on the whole way that I really felt like somewhat better. And I'll say it was so cool. I came across the line. Uh, Heather Jackson was there who I just met at a previous race. Um, you know, said what's up to her. My whole crew was like cheering me on, dude, you know, knuckles, high fives everywhere. And it was so welcoming and cool to come across the line in that fashion. And dude, they're getting videos. And I made a joke about needing a beer and literally Walter's dad immediately goes and gets me a beer. And I had one in my hand in like three minutes. <laughs> it was amazing. And I'm going to tell you, I drank half of that thing and I was getting sloppy because <laughs> It just, you know, it, it hits differently after 200 miles. And uh, it's funny because I actually don't drink beer very often, but it's only after like big bike rides where a beer even sounds good. And it just hit the absolute spot. But yeah, it was, uh, it was an incredible way to finish up the day. And I can honestly say like, I've never been so proud to just finish a race. And I have a whole new respect for that event. I mean, it truly is a different beast. And I think anybody that took that race on in those conditions and really just persevered and endured and got it done has a level of respect um, that, you know, they, they wouldn't have if I hadn't experienced it myself. Like even the people who finished like after midnight, which is, it's crazy to think because, you know, I wrote, it took me 13 hours, which is light years off of the winning times, but it took some people, you know, well beyond that. Like I finished at 7 PM. So if you finished at 1230 at night, I mean, what is that adding on another five hours or something like that? I mean, dude, it's, it's so gnarly. And you think even though they're not going as fast, they're just out there for so much longer. In fact, uh, Isabel King was on a podcast talking about this and it's like, what's harder to do it shorter with the higher intensity or just to be out there for so long. And to be honest, it's it's probably pretty similar, or maybe it's even harder to be out there for that long because obviously you're out there for longer if you're not putting in the hours of training, which is understandable if it's not your job. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it gave me a new respect for people who are out there for long days because you'll even notice it at some other rides, like, you know, BWR or something, it's, it's not nearly the distance, but it's still like 130 miles. And you'll be eating dinner, finishing up dinner, and there's people still rolling in, and you're like, oh my gosh, like, dude, this person's still been out there cranking. And and honestly, I have a whole new respect for those finishers um, after Unbound. So like I said in my Instagram post, I came for the full Unbound experience, and I can honestly say I got that. I was so satisfied with how the day went and so proud of myself for getting through those conditions and finishing it. And, and to be honest, keeping a smile on my face like the entire time. I felt like I soaked up the race in real time, in the moment, as much as you possibly could have. And even though I didn't perform, you know, from like a power standpoint or competitive standpoint, the way that I, I did want to, 
I'm just so happy with the day. The whole event was incredible. The uh, actual expo the days before, meeting the Dialed fam, connecting with sponsors, hanging out with pros. I think Unbound is something that if you are into endurance and you're into gravel particularly, or you're just into cycling and you're nearby, it's it's worth coming out and, and seeing what it's all about. Um, but it was a hard day. You know, will I do it again next year? I feel 50-50, like literally on the fence because – for one, it's just hard. You know, there are courses that are more fun to ride. Uh, but then again, it's so gratifying to finish. And the event itself brings so much more than just the race. And so to be a part of it was really special. So I feel like going back is something I want to do, but there's also other events I want to try. So I hope that recap gave you a good understanding of what I went through during the race. And now we're going to go into all the questions that were submitted about the race, and I can answer them quickly and directly. All right, we're going to dive into some specific questions I got on Instagram, and actually people who have texted me as well or sent me a DM uh, about Unbound, so I can answer your questions directly. So Caffeine Cycle on Instagram said, I want to hear tips and tricks for what a first-timer would expect experiencing this event like when to line up at the start, when to get registration, things you wish you knew beforehand. Now, I did talk about the start for the Pro Corral and really how aggressive it was off the beginning. I will say because they do the start corrals, you won't have to line up as early as some of the other events that are just purely a mass start, which is kind of nice. But that ultimately depends on how competitive you want to be. If you want to be toward the front of whatever your group is, I would try and get there like 30 minutes before your start. And that's going to ensure that you're going to get a decent enough spot with also not being there like an hour before. Like there will be people who start lining up like an hour before. Yes, they deserve to be at the front, but do you really want to be there for a full hour? I don't think so. So I would play that one uh, up to yourself on really how much you care about starting in the front right away. Because if you can move up in position, you'll probably be fine. And ultimately, it is a long race. So if it's not as competitive of a field and you have the legs, like you'll be able to push up. Now, in regards to registration and, and organizing the whole event, I'll say I had one full day of the expo where I also did a shakeout ride and also signed up and registered or just registered. Of course, you have to pre-register. And it was just enough time. I'll say that if I could do it differently, I would add another day where I do my registration early. So like Thursday when the expo opens to go kind of get your feet you know, on the ground, check out the expo a little bit, and then actually go and sign up and then do a separate day where you do a shakeout ride and then more expo. I think that would be an ideal buffer because if something comes up, you know, you have time to address it. You never know what's going to happen with your bike or uh, you forget your ID or something like that. But it's just nice to have more time. And if it's realistic for you going to Unbound specifically, I would try and get there early enough to where Thursday, you can actually go do your registration and check the expo stuff out. Friday, you shake out ride. And then you have more time that day to prep for your event. Because I didn't go to bed till after 10 p.m. the night before just because I was kind of cramming everything into one day. This next question is from underscore CJ underscore. <laughs> A lot of E's. It says, love to hear your feeling plan versus reality. And also maybe three to five things you would do differently or the same for next time. Honestly, my fueling plan was exactly what I had hoped for. I'm going to give you guys a brief rundown of what I did and executed. And also, I think in the future, what I might try to do differently. So let me give you guys a breakdown of what my plan was. 
I knew that early on I wanted to get calories in my hydration pack. I had two packs that I was able to swap at the aid stations. One was a liter and a half. One was two liters. But for both, I put 270 grams of carbohydrates and just under 2,000 milligrams of sodium in each one. So there was plenty of liquid. There was a good amount of calories. And there was sodium, but not an overkill amount. Now, I did that because I knew it wasn't going to get too hot, even though there was a lot of humidity. I knew that if I needed to supplement separately with sodium that I could do it. And I've learned in the past that if you put too much sodium in your pack, you know, for me, it's like an excess of 2000 milligrams. It can feel like you're getting a little too puffy and I definitely don't want that. So I just had water in my bottles and with me were gels and bars. And so one thing I included, because I'm sure you want to know some brand names. So for the mix, I used this brand called Sturka but I mixed it with BP and electrolytes. And the reason I did this mix instead of just using G1 and Sport was just to control the ratio. And you know, I'm just being honest about that because it's a very unique situation of putting it in your pack and putting this volume. I could have done BP and electrolytes with cane sugar, which is what I do at home a lot when I want a more custom mix. But I chose packets of another brand simply just for the travel, like the ease of travel. And that brand is really good. Um, but I love the BPN electrolyte sticks, the Go packs. You can get those 500 milligrams a piece. And on me for gels, I had a mix of the Never Second C30 gels and also Spring Energy gels. You know, the C30 Never Second gels are really standard, 30 grams of carbs. Uh, they are e really easy to get down. You know, they're not too thick, so they're very easy to eat. They also kind of taste like Mountain Dew, in my opinion. They taste pretty dang good. Uh, and the spring gels are thicker. It's almost like an applesauce, and it's all whole foods. So I've noticed those can really settle your stomach if your stomach feeling like a little bit empty, and you still get the carbohydrates that you need. Like one spring pack is like 180 calories, or you can get one that's closer to 25 calories, but it has 40 milligrams of caffeine. So I like having that combination of gels. And for bars, I did a mix of Cliff Bars and the Sturka Rice Bars. The Sturka Rice Bars are 50 grams of carbohydrate, and they're super easy to eat, delicious. I highly recommend them. Uh, the Cliff Bars I went with, honestly, because I didn't bring enough Sturka Bars. <laughs> and so those were the brands that I had. And I kept five gels in my pocket and two bars, plus the pack and two full bottles between each aid station. Now, when I got to the aid stations, I had a banana immediately each time. The first aid station, I had a Red Bull. The second aid station, I had a Coke. And I also snacked on some Pringles, but that was pretty much it. You know, I had so much food with me and I ate like all of it that the banana really felt good to kind of settle my stomach. Obviously, it's full of carbohydrates. And the little bit of salt from the Pringles I had was just a nice way to kind of switch up the flavors. But we pretty much just loaded up the pack and kept it moving. And the one spontaneous thing I grabbed were those snickerdoodle cookies. And that was the only thing I ate that I didn't bring. And honestly, they just sounded so good and they ended up being so good. And I knew there wasn't going to be much dairy in them besides butter or I guess some eggs. Uh, but there wasn't any chocolate chips or anything that I've had trouble with in the past. So they felt like a very safe thing to have. So very stoked about those snickerdoodles. And I think going forward, it's not that I feel like I need to eat differently, but one thing I loved from some of the pros, and of course, you never know if this is like 100% true or just like a branding push, but for instance, there were some athletes that just used Never Second products, and they said, I had eight gels, I had three packets of mix, and I had two of their bars. 
And I love how simple that is because it's good feedback for people who are trying to plan themselves. And I think that's an area that I can do better regarding my content in general is really narrowing in on the food that I eat and what I drink during these events. And I promise to do that better in the future. You know, the double Everest was something that we tried to do it with and we actually saved all of the food from it. Uh, but we also save like the banana peels and like all the, you know, uh, really perishable goods like that in the same trash bag. So it all got thrown into a pile. And by the time I got to it and tried to take account for it, it was an absolute mess. It was disgusting. So anyways, that's what I ate. I don't regret any of it. I'm super happy with how I felt throughout the day. The next question is from at Newt Luter, which is actually Mitzi from Louisiana. Shout out to you, Mitzi. It was awesome meeting you at the expo. She is excited to hear about the recap and wants to know about my recovery plans. Now, I'd say in a nutshell, my recovery plan is to continue my frequency and lower the intensity. So going into basically the following week of Unbound, which has been this week, I took a day off and that was with travel, just in mobility. And the following day, I did an active recovery spin on the turbo. So this is like zone one, cruising 30 minutes, with a lot of stretching afterwards. And that made me feel so much better because truthfully, not doing anything the next day wasn't ideal, but I just got put in that position because of my traveling schedule. If you could do 30 minutes easy the day after, you're gonna feel so much better. I got very stiff, very swollen on the plane and just kind of uncomfortable. And I didn't get home till kind of late. So my sleep was horrendous that night. In fact, there were two mornings in a row after this race where I woke up with a one recovery score from my Garmin. You know, it's like one through a hundred. And I literally had a one both days. And that's because not only did I get limited sleep the night of the race because of like posting and, and honestly just being social and eating a lot of food. I did a 10 PM chicken wing stop, but the following race, I didn't get home till late and I wanted to make sure I could get a post up in the morning. So it was just little obligations like that, which kept me from getting a proper night's sleep. And it kept my recovery score really low, but I did take time off of intensity. And the following day, which was Tuesday after that spin, I actually did a strength workout and just kept it light. I did a lot of mobility, took my time warming up. Then on Wednesday, I did a 90-minute zone two ride with a couple openers just to kind of get my legs moving a little bit again. And now with my strength workout today, honestly, if I wasn't feeling a little sick, I'd probably just try and do a normal strength workout. I am going to play it more by ear just because of how I feel today. But really going into the weekend, I'm going to bring back some intensity and, and just play it by ear. If I feel good and I want to go hard, I'm going to. Um, my recovery score is improving a ton through my Garmin devices. And I feel feel like strangely motivated after Unbound. I think it's because even though I completed the race and got the experience, I still didn't get that feeling of performance that I'm really craving and that I've really trained for. So I did feel strangely motivated after it. And it's like, I'm already excited to kind of start riding hard again, uh, just a little shorter <laughs> for sure. And so I'm going to play this weekend by ear and I have a gravel race in three and a half weeks. And I honestly think until then, I'm going to leave things unstructured and just kind of let the fitness I've built sit with me, tap into it a little bit here and there, and just not stress about specifics, to be honest. Uh, but I promise you the frequency will be there, a minimum of four rides, a minimum of two strength workouts, and really a big focus on diet, actually, uh, as my goals kind of transition over the next couple months, because We'll get into it, but I want to do some body comp rechange, get my body fat down to single digit again, 
and really track my food and get in tune with my diet and just kind of reset my body a little bit, take a little bit more time off alcohol and uh, yeah, just kind of like, give myself a proper reset. So that's what it looked like after the race. And that's what it looks like going forward for the next couple of weeks. You know, there's one thing in there I didn't talk about, which I'd really like to add. And that is how much I love massage guns. I used a massage gun the following morning after the race, and it took me from feeling absolutely horrendous to actually feeling somewhat okay. <laughs> I mean, those things, even if it is a short-term fix, which I'm sure people argue for, and there's all these reasons why they don't work, I'm telling you, those things feel freaking good, and they're so easy to use, especially when you're absolutely blown out. So the mechanic I was staying with, Drew, again, came through clutch with a hyper-ice massage gun. And I used it the next morning and it really helped out a lot. So I would definitely say if you have access to a massage gun, uh, like I do at home at least, that I would I would definitely bring that thing. Uh, and I'd plan on using it. I think in the future, I'll make sure I bring my own. Next question is from NJ Helquist. He asked, can you talk about your build before the race? What did you do? What did you thought worked? What did you, would you do differently on your next endurance event? You know, this was really interesting. I actually want to dedicate more time to this question, more so about what I learned in the training process for Unbound, because there was so much I did differently. And to the person asking the question, I would go back to the episodes I did with Frank from Fast Cat, uh, talking about my Unbound training plan. And I go into all the details that you're looking for on there. But really from doing my first 20-minute power test to doing... Uh, outdoor intervals to actually building in volume and having some progressive overload with my riding schedule and then backing off and doing a taper. It was a really, really interesting process. And I think what you probably heard from this podcast is that I didn't really notice much of it because of the conditions and what I was battling through, which I'm kind of bummed about. You know, I really wanted that to come through because even on the rides that I was doing leading up to Unbound, I could definitely tell the speed was coming up. And I was feeling really dang good. And even with the taper beforehand, it was kind of nice because, you know, I didn't feel this crazy need to ride, even though I was riding significantly less because there's so much extra to do during a race week. And that is one thing about a taper that gets me more excited, even more so than the rest is like the time you get back. Like that, that was amazing. So go back, listen to the previous episodes and, I'm, and I think you'll hear everything you're looking for. Now, these questions are sent from our previous co-host, Amber Simon. Shout out to you, Amber. She is a local to the area and very experienced with Unbound. So these questions are extremely insightful. We're going to go down the list. She asks, were you going in with any specific goal outside of finishing? You know, I told you guys I wasn't, but after the fact, having, having not performed with the crew of riders that I typically do, it was kind of frustrating. I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit frustrating. I didn't have a specific position goal, but I really believe that finishing like within 90 minutes of the top guys would have been like possible. And I still feel like that would have been possible based on previous races that I've done and finishing times and all those things. But it's just such a different beast that truly I had to let that go when I started and it just left a little bit of hunger inside of me. So it would have been nice to feel like I was racing more than just riding, but I, again, I, I still got the experience I was looking for. She asked, were you watching the weather and adjusting those goals or going in with them same plan? Oh, I had the same plan. I had the same plan. The weather was changing so much and I didn't do course recon to the point where I knew exactly where the weather and the rain the night before would affect the race. So I kind of went in just winging it. 
And I think that ultimately, you know, slowed me down in the end. But with goals, I don't think it would change my goals regarding position. Like if I came in with a more specific goals, because ultimately everyone's dealing with the same conditions and maybe there's more curveballs. You have to have more luck. Some people have more bad luck, but I think it probably would have stayed the same. She asked, were the hills slash terrain more different than you anticipated? Yeah, I will actually say one thing I didn't talk about during the recap was how much of a variety of conditions there are out there. I mean, you go from the mud to hard pack fast gravel to actually really smooth gravel to very not smooth gravel. You get to points on the course where it is literally just baby heads of rock that you're riding over. And so the amount of variety was actually surprising to me. Even though visually a lot of the surroundings stayed the same, so much of the actual road surface itself changed a lot. And I thought that was actually really cool. Now, she knew I was doing the kettlebell program preparing for the race, and she asked if I was thrilled with how it prepared me for the race. And and yeah, absolutely. You know, it was really interesting because a couple of weeks before the race, I actually was filming some content which required me to use some barbells and some different weights besides the kettlebells. Like I kind of went off program right before the race, but again, this is like the nature of what I do. And it was okay. It was actually kind of fun to switch it up and pick up a little bit more heavy weight. But in general, the kettlebell program is so rad. I mean, literally kettlebells are without a doubt my favorite exercise tool. And I was excited to go through a couple months of solely using kettlebells because it's something I've thought about for a while. It's just something I've wanted to do. And it felt really good. Now, I do have multiple kettlebell weights, which I also think was very helpful. But I think for someone who is just getting into it and you want an accessible workout that you can just do anywhere, grab a kettlebell, get moving, use the kettlebell program. It was sick. Next question, she asks, were there any people or stories specifically of the Dowd fam that inspired you from Unbound Weekend? How was the expo? Well, one thing that was really cool about the expo was that I got to do a meet and greet with LEL. And honestly, guys, people showed up. It was so cool. I talked about Mitzi earlier in the episode, and I met a Dowd fan member, Blake. I met uh, Ken. And, and honestly, Ken was one of the most inspiring people I've met because he told me about the programs he's done in preparation to this event, especially I think where he lives has had some brutal weather, so they haven't been able to ride as much. But he started with a 30-day beginner uh, bodyweight program, moved on to the off-season enduro program. I think he switched to the gravel program and is now racing the Unbound 50, and then plans on doing, I can't remember which one it was. We had talked about it, but in between this and Rebecca's Private Idaho. But to see his excitement about the results he's had from the program and how confident he felt going into the day, which I found out went really well for him, it got me so fired up. And it just made me so proud to offer the product that I do uh, with all the programs and the coaching advice that I can offer um, at least at this level. So that was really, really inspiring. And and I will say you guys, the expo at Unbound, besides Sea Otter is without a doubt the best event expo I've ever been to. You know, BWR has pretty good expos, but like this one was pumping. You could have easily been there for five hours and gone to all the booths and had a great time and gotten food and done the whole thing. Uh, whereas other expos are typically like a 30 minute walkthrough. You know, you see it, you're good. You get registered, you're done. But this was truly like a proper event. Uh, it was like a little slice of sea otter, honestly. She asked, tell us about the dark places the race found you in, if any, and how you got through it. I think we kind of covered that during the, uh, the race episode. Uh, and then overall vibe check. Did Emporia's community add to your experience? Hardest part about this race prep. 
the overall vibe was great. It really was. The community was nice. Great lawns in the nearby neighborhoods. I really want to shout out to all the neighbors keeping those lawns in check. Those were honestly something I will shoot for in the future. You guys probably have the advantage with the humidity of keeping those things green, but I've never seen so many properly fresh cut lush looking lawns, even grass, no crab grass, no flowers, no weeds. I really appreciated that. I've been working on my lawn at home and uh, gave me a lot to strive for. But yeah, the neighborhood was super nice. Uh, the house we stayed in was great. Uh, Emporia itself was really cool. It was like I said earlier, the event almost seemed to be the reason the town was there because it is a small town and it's got this like old school kind of industrial vibe. The only thing negative I would say about it is the food. <laughs> There's like no good food in Emporia. And I don't know if I missed it. It seemed like food trucks were kind of the thing there. Uh, but those were a little risky, it seemed like to me. And the night before the race, I ended up going to dinner by myself, which it was intentional. Like I wanted to go out to dinner, uh, clear through some DMs and do some work, do some emails, and just kind of like have a moment by myself after being with people all day. And I'm setting you up because it's about to sound really depressing at where I ended up. But first I was like, okay, I want sushi. Like I always want sushi the night before a race. It's easy to control the macros. It's delicious. I started looking up sushi spots and they're all closed like permanently. And then I was like, oh yeah, I'm in the middle of the country. Like we're really far from actual water, like, like salt water, like places you'd want to get your fish. <laughs> I was like, maybe there's a reason why I'm not able to get sushi. So I was like, okay, whatever. What, like what food would be good here that I want to eat? I was like, oh, barbecue. Like I'll go eat some biscuits and some, uh, some like chicken and ribs right now. Like that sounds great. But I went to a barbecue spot and it was just like, I don't know. It was almost like fast food. Like it just didn't seem quality. And again, maybe I missed Maybe I missed the real good place to go. You guys can let me know. But I basically ended up at an Applebee's by myself in the middle of Kansas. I called my wife and I was like, I never thought I would be here. <laughs> and if you told me I'd be at an Applebee's in the middle of Kansas by myself at any point in my life, I would probably ask you like why I was running from the police or something. Like literally, what the heck am I doing there? So my only complaint about Emporia is the food. Um, other than that, it was a really fun place to go and, uh, yeah, surprisingly, uh, enjoyable. Now, last question is hardest part about this race prep. The hardest part about this race prep was probably trying so many new things and adding high volume rides every weekend for five weeks straight. That was pretty taxing on the family. It was pretty taxing on myself and it was kind of hard to do because, you know, obviously there's the time it takes. It's like half a day on a weekend. And this is after like a full work week and everything. So, you know, I could tell it was putting some strain on my family. And then even, even then it's like, I'm going out and doing three, 400 TSS rides and I'm coming home and immediately taking my family to church and a dinner. And it's like, again, it's kind of the perfect day, but at the same time, you're so exhausted that you're just, like dead. And so I, I don't miss that. That was actually pretty tough. Um, I like the fitness that came along with it, but, but yeah, I think it was just plugging those really big rides on those on the weekend. And then kind of just the logistics of trying the new style of training with fast cat and doing outdoor intervals more. And again, it was really cool. It's something I've been wanting to do. Uh, but it was a lot to take on and it exposes areas of where you are in your routine. Like for example, I only have erg mode as an option on my 
indoor trainer because I have a dedicated trainer bike. And I mean, I guess I could put my normal bike on the turbo, but I don't have any of the shifting working. It's like locked in one gear. I don't even have brakes on the bike. <laughs> so I realized I was like, oh, like I can only do erg mode. I was like, okay, that's one little thing that, you know, it'd be nice to change in the future. So uh, I think coming into this winter, I'll make those changes. But yeah, I think moving forward, I'm just excited to not have so much structure, not have to plug big rides on the weekend uh, for the sake of training. And I can be a little bit more spontaneous with it. And, um, you know, spend a little bit more time with my family. Uh, I'm excited about focusing on body composition change, my food over the next three weeks. And I'm probably going to be doing a little bit more strength training than normal. So it's going to be a nice little tune-up for my body. I think I need it. And then I'll be basically set and fit for the rest of summer and going into fall, which I think fall surprisingly is going to be the busiest event-wise for me. So that's pretty much it. I really appreciate the questions, you guys. Thank you so much for all your support leading up to this and and even through the actual event itself. Big shout out to everyone who raced Unbound and finished. Uh, I have mad respect for all the riders, uh, no matter what event you did. And I actually want to point out something that was brought up on social media. And it was about how people said at the event, they were only doing the 100. You'd ask them what they're doing. They're like, oh, I'm only doing the 100. And even me at the time, I was like, okay, like, you know, it's not the 200, but it's a hundred miles. Like that is, is, that is monster. Almost every other event you go to, the hundred is the biggest option there. And I think Unpound is so unique and it's almost like desensitized people to what a hundred miles truly is because it's a really hard day on the bike. So I'm just throwing this out there because if you didn't do the 200, don't feel like you did anything that wasn't worthy. You know what I mean? Like, you were on your bike for a hundred miles. You were on your bike for 50 miles or 25 miles or whatever it was. It could have been a PR for you that day of gravel riding. And it was a 25 mile ride to me. That's you moving forward. And I love it. So keep that in mind. I guess when you sign up for these events, you're not obligated to do the hardest one. I mean, you guys know my style. It's typically the way I like to go, but I didn't do the 350. <laughs> you know, like, would I, maybe I've considered it, but Dude, that is a whole other beast. So anyways, keep it in mind. It's just a unique race. And uh, I think you guys should be proud of finishing whatever distance you did. So that's it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to next episode and uh, hopefully getting my voice back. Until I talk to you guys next time, start moving forward.